Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas. I'm one of the co-hosts, and we have a special treat for you today. Tim Cinema is with us. Tim, say hello to the folks. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Well, Tim is the managing partner of, of Crossland Southeast, which is a commercial real estate company in Charlotte. And so I'm just going to get right into it, Tim. Tell us about where you grew up and what that was like. Thanks, Jeff. I grew up in South Chicago. I uh, was a, uh, the youngest son of uh, Christian parents. I have three brothers, an identical twin brother and two older brothers. And we literally grew up in, in the city in South Chicago. And if you Googled now where all the murders and crime happens, it would center around the neighborhood that we all grew up in. That's a crazy story. You telling me earlier about what that was like. When I I grew up in St. Louis, so maybe I know a little more about Chicago from being from the Midwest. But when I hear the south side of Chicago, that's literally what I think of is the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous places in the country, frankly. So what was that like? Give us just a little picture of what that was like for you growing up. Well, initially, when I was young, it was great. We walked to a Christian school two blocks one way and Walked to our church two blocks the other way, and the corner store was down the block, and everything uh, was wonderful. But that was in the uh, early 60s, and a lot of things changed. They had redlining and blockbusting and all these things that that you read about in storybooks or history books. That was reality for us. And so the neighborhood changed. There was a lot of racial tension. Crime started uh, increasing pretty dramatically. My older brothers, both of them, ended up getting basically beat up on the way home from, you know, from uh, their uh, after-school jobs and so on. And ultimately, what happened was our entire church, we sold the, the land and the building to a, a different congregation, and we moved the church to northwest Indiana, and about two-thirds of the families in our church moved along with it. And so we moved, I don't know what that was, maybe... 30, 40 miles away across the state line to Northwest Indiana. And, and that's uh, where my brother, my young, my twin brother and I uh, attended middle school and high school there was in Northwest Indiana. Man, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard a story like that, where you literally move a community together, yeah. uh, like a church community together. And, and we'll get to where God redeems uh, that story of, of how you grew up. I think that's so interesting to see how uh, this ties into what you're doing now. But tell, tell us about uh, school and that kind of thing. Uh, Where did you go off to? Yeah, so I finished high school in Northwest Indiana at a Christian school. I'm a product of Christian education. My parents really believed in that and sacrificed greatly to send all four of their kids to, uh, to Christian school. Ended up, not, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do after high school or, you know, for a career. So I attended Dort uh, College, D-O-R-D-T, Dort College in Northwest Iowa. It's a Christian school there. And I attended there just taking general classes for two years and then transferred to Purdue University, which was an in-state school. Uh, at that time, it was uh, one of the best engineering schools in the yeah. country. And so I studied engineering and, and stayed there for a an undergrad and a graduate degree there. 
Uh, met my wife there. She was a nursing student. Uh, when she graduated with me, we got married and uh, I took an engineering job and worked in engineering for about a minute and a half before I realized <laughs> I could never do that for a living. I remember coming home from work very early telling my wife, I think I made a major mistake. Oh, wow. It just wasn't for me. I like the challenge of the educational rigor, but the uh, sitting behind a desk just wasn't, uh, wasn't for me. So we ended up relocating to Denver, Colorado and eventually uh, changed careers and got into commercial real estate development. And you talked about, I think this is kind of interesting too, because I think it sort of ties in also the way you think about real estate in communities, but you told me about the motivation for moving to Colorado, you know, with the family being there and so forth. Yeah, that was actually moving, Jeff, from Colorado to Charlotte. Oh, okay. So that was from Charlotte. So Colorado, what was that? That was still a pretty big move. That was a major move. And that was really just uh, wanderlust, I guess. I okay. had not really spent much time out west, and I was really drawn to that. And so my wife and I decided, hey, we're young. We didn't have children at the time. So we were kind of adventurous, and we moved to Denver, having really never been there before, and loved it. We built a home there and, and lived there for about 20 years, 22 years or so, had uh, all four of our children there, built deep friendships and plugged into church community. And, and uh, it was we, we had a wonderful, wonderful life there. Our kids were spaced a little unusually. We had two children, and then it took 11 years for number three to come along. And then we had a, a fourth soon after. So we kind of have two pairs. And with the wisdom that comes from age, uh, when we were raising the second set of kids, we, uh, we really felt that we wanted our kids to be around uh, their family. And we didn't have relation, uh, our relatives within, I don't know, a thousand miles of Denver. And so at that time, I had the flexibility to essentially relocate my business from the Rocky Mountains to wherever. And uh, we were drawn to the Southeast because that's where I had several of my brothers and my wife's uh, parents and so on. And so we settled in Charlotte. We moved here in 2005 and we've been uh, doing business here ever since. So, but there's a lot of years there uh, in Denver. So I was thinking about the, I guess it was more of the family formation uh, that happened in uh, Colorado. And I know you went to graduate school there and so forth. Was it after graduate school that you sort of uh, shifted into the real estate business directly? It, it was. I got an MBA at University of Colorado and just through nothing short of, you know, God's providence, I met some folks that made some introductions for me and I ended up making a career shift, uh, joined a company called Trammell Crow Company sure. and um, and began soon after moving to Denver with, with them and... and um, had a great career, you know, early years with them and then left uh, there about six or seven years later and started my own development company in Denver, which is ultimately what I was able to essentially relocate from, uh, from the Rocky Mountains out to Charlotte. Do you run into many ex-engineers that are in real estate? You know, I wouldn't say I run into... I literally can't think of one. I mean, I'm not in the real estate business, but I'm sure there are others. I've got some accounting buddies, but that's where I started. But yeah. Not a lot of, well, I guess, I mean, I don't know, accounting and engineering, maybe a little bit of a, there's models, right, that you tend to follow perhaps. I mean, how does that translate that part of your brain? 
Well, it's interesting. I, I get the technical aspects, but I also like the creative aspects. And I oh. think that's why I'm really drawn to real estate development specifically because it allows both sides of my brain, I guess, to work. Now, the, now, so I got you there prematurely, but now we've got, now maybe we can talk about, so you've got your own development company. It's going, it sounds like it's going just fine, yeah. but you're feeling this draw with the next two kids born to kind of be closer to family. A couple of your brothers, right? We're in Charlotte. Talk, talk about that move. That's a big move after 20 years in, about, in owning your own business in a location. Yeah, that was a huge move. And Again, we, my brothers are close. All, all of us have always been uh, very, very close. And our oldest brother, John, is a pastor and in many ways, you know, a hero of mine in life. I mean, he's incredibly wise and just an amazing, amazing guy. And so he, at the time, was leading a church in Dallas. My twin brother was working in Charlotte. And then John started talking to a church in Charlotte as well. And I remember we were getting together. We always get together at least once a year with the brothers. And John was saying, hey, I'm contemplating move to Charlotte. I said, shoot, if you move to Charlotte, I'm moving there. Because wow. you know, that way, you know, three of the four of us could, uh, could get together. And, and it turns out my wife's parents were in Florida and were looking for a place to kind of to settle. They, they, they weren't loving Florida. And so... Ultimately, uh, over a couple of years period, we uh, explored that and really felt led to to move there. And in hindsight, we see God's hand at work. And the int interesting thing I, I'll add to that, Jeff, is when we made the move, we knew, we just knew it was God's design for our family. And yet the, the first 18 months were incredibly difficult. And and we just had to keep saying, this is where God wants us, doesn't right. it? We're sticking to it. That's right. We're going to stick stick with it. Was it mostly yeah. hard for you? Who is it hardest for? The kids or you and your wife? Or It was really, it was challenging for my kids, which made, which made it Makes even it more challenging for my wife. I, right. I, I was the one that probably made it the easiest because I plugged into work and had a okay. you know, kind of a learner. So I like pouring in and learning new things and it was new challenges and meeting new people and new real estate and all of that. Uh, but my wife really felt, you know, the pain deeply, uh, you know, from some of the kids that were missing their, their friendships and relationships and all of that. Makes sense. And, and so you had your own business back in Denver. Were you thinking originally you would keep just running that business, but I know you picked up some new partners. Maybe talk a little about that transition. Yeah. So I had my own development company in Denver, and my plan was just to just stop doing real estate development in, in the West and start doing it in Charlotte. And right. as I got here, that was 2000, late 2005. The market was pretty frothy there. And frankly, I got a little intimidated as I drove around and started studying the marketplace. And, and I, I call it a, you know, I, I blame the Lord for giving me that disquiet in my spirit because I just didn't. I didn't feel like the timing was was right. Not that I was prescient or could see things others didn't. I I just didn't have instinctively. I didn't have a good feeling about it. And you know, through a, a again another really neat set of circumstances that could only be explained uh, through God's providence. Met some folks and uh, ended up joining a company called Crosland at the time. And and then a number of years later, had the opportunity with some partners there to to form Crossland Southeast. And, and we did that in 2011. And 
I've got, you know, some of the best partners in the world and, and, um, we've been, uh, hard at work, uh, building that business since 2011 and it's been fantastic. Well, we know some of the same people and they introduced us to, to you because I know you're a pretty understated guy. And so I appreciate your joining us to tell your story. And I think this story we've talked about is, you know, not something you're yeah, you're doing it to your own horn, but I think it's important to kind of get into uh, some of the things you've done to kind of use this real estate platform to do some things. Obviously, this is the Generous Business Owner uh, podcast, so that's kind of how we, the direction we always go. So talk about the ministry you start kind of doing, that platform, what it provided. I mean, you started doing some mentorship, right? Yeah, that, really interesting. And I, before I get too deep into it, I certainly want to give a shout out to Lloyd Reeve. I met Lloyd relatively early after my move in Charlotte and ended up uh, doing a halftime round table. Yeah. And um, he's, he's been one of the most, you know, influential people in my life. And he's just, I, I can't say enough good things about him. He's a dear friend and a wonderful man and shared a lot of wisdom with me over the years. And some people go through a halftime experience and they leave the business world and maybe they join the nonprofit world. I was a little different where I felt completely affirmed to remain in the business world, but to use my business platform and social capital to basically bless the city that I'm in, bless the partners that I work with, bless the clients uh, and associates that we deal with and in a much more intentional way. And so so I started just, you know, had a kind of a new outlook on life, frankly, after going through halftime. That was about 2010, 2011, and just really started seeing how, you know, the Lord put me here. He gave me this platform, and I wanted to see how I could best utilize that for his glory, not just my own, frankly. And about the same time, I met another dear friend of mine, Mark Linz. Mark was formerly treasurer of Bank of America, and and he and I got to know each other and shared some common interests in kind of investing in young people. And both of us were lamenting the fact that we had a lot of young folks that wanted more of our time than we were able to provide. And so what we ended up doing was um, merging some of the folks that were calling on him and some of the folks that I was meeting with into a group. And we met every Friday morning for, uh, for seven years. We called it two, as opposed to halftime. It was second quarter for, uh, for <laughs> these guys. It, got it. And uh, they were a bunch of great guys. They're still dear, dear friends of ours. I was trading emails with, with them, uh, a number of them today, in fact. And we started just meet with these guys. And rather than doing a traditional Bible study or doing a book study, we just, Mark and I, would take turns throwing questions out to the group and wrestling with those questions and questions like, you know, what's it look like to compete Christianly in the business world? Uh, what's it look like to communicate well in marriage? What does biblical stewardship look like and involve? And then we'd work on those topics for two or three or four weeks ourselves. And then we'd bring in one of the key, you know, spiritual leaders within Charlotte that could, you know, experts in those fields. And, and they would lead the group for three or four or five weeks. And we used to say these young people and ourselves were getting kind of hall of fame instruction in these life areas. And uh, it was a magnificent experience. And then 
one of the questions that was really life turned out to be life changing was yeah. was um, what's it look like, you know, or what's the business marketplace leader's responsibility in social justice? Um, uh, Charlotte had some basically some some riots and or a riot in 2016, and uh, there was a police shooting of an African American individual, and that led to lots of lots of uh, kind of unrest, I would say. And then on the heels of that, or about the same time, Charlotte was named 50th out of the top 50 cities in the country in terms of upward mobility. If you're born poor, your chances of getting to the top you know, income brackets was lower in Charlotte than any of the other top 50 cities. And, and that uh, ranking was something that stimulated uh, just a, a great deal of conversation at the elected official level, at the marketplace leader level, and so on. And that was the same time we're wrestling with this social justice question. And, and I think I remember it really clarified that for me, maybe just because I'm a numbers guy, but the way they did that study where wasn't it if you were in the bottom 20%, what are the odds of in different cities of you being able to achieve moving to the top 20%? Do I have that right? I think that's exactly correct. It was a professor Chetty out of Harvard did the study. And I believe that's exactly right. If you're born in the in the bottom 20% percentile, trying to get to the top 20 percentile, uh, your your success rate was lower in Charlotte than in, in other cities. Not much. I mean, there were decimal, decimal yeah, points. Yeah, but still separating Charlotte out. from others. But Yeah, it stood out as a problem. And then what I think is so interesting is how, uh, I mean, obviously you've got this history growing up in the south side of Chicago. Very few people have that. You probably think that, you know, was maybe... A little bit normal. I mean, it's normal for you. It's the only growing up you had. But I, I don't know, because you were describing to me uh, that as you were kind of looking for a subject matter expert, it, it, it just, this this idea, this one's stuck in your craw. Is that right? Yeah. It, 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 so like the other topics, we discuss social justice and, and a marketplace leader responsibility, you know, to social justice for three, four, five weeks. And then we moved on. We actually didn't find subject matter expert to come in and give us all the, tell us where we're all wrong. But we went on to something else and Mark and I were together some months later and we were both talking about how we felt like that we couldn't get past that social justice topic. It was, it was haunting us in some way. It was just like a divine burden was the term that we both used and he felt the same thing. And, and then we said, well, maybe there's something, you know, we're supposed to be doing around that topic. And so we we reached out to some friends and there were some other conversations underway about that same time. And so we put a group, mostly business people, a couple of, couple of faith leaders together and just started talking. And there, were all, there was a lot of interest around the topic, not a lot of unity in terms of what we felt we were called to do. But ultimately, we met two or three or four times and then uh, finally raised our hands to acknowledge that we knew nothing about what we were talking about. And so we brought in a couple of pastors, an African-American pastor and a white pastor that both led inner city churches and, and just tried to learn from them. What, what do you need? You know, some of these guys had been toiling in obscurity for literally 25 years and trying to make a difference and just faithful, godly, faithful stewards. And, you know, like we hear a lot, God doesn't call us to success. He calls us to faithfulness. And these people were were the epitome of that. And uh, 
And one of those pastors, Dave Dukason, still a dear, dear friend of mine, was at the same time getting a PhD in the cyclical effects of generational poverty. I love that. And it's not something you had considered a PhD in prior. No, I never thought about that. <laughs> um, and uh, he's a lot more intellectual than I am, but he uh, he's a great guy and a dear friend. And and he wanted to do some research flying around the country to see examples that were of neighborhoods that had been successfully transformed. They call those place-based redevelopment. So the group of us passed the hat and, and essentially funded his research to fly to Detroit and Chicago and DC and Atlanta and, and uh, Orlando and, and so on. And the results of that PhD, he produced a book called The uh, Neighborliness, which I would certainly recommend. But it, with regard to place-based redevelopment, a lot of the, the models where, where places were successfully transformed trace their model roots to the East Lake Atlanta experience from purpose-built communities. And so Mark and I and David and a few others went down and spent a day with the purpose-built communities folks. And it was really an epiphany for us to see, uh, and, and basically their model, they're not necessarily a, a Christian organization at all, but their model says, okay, to change life trajectories for in areas of concentrated poverty, you've got to have quality schools. You've got to have economic opportunity. You've got to have access to healthcare. You've got to have stable, affordable housing, but you can't just selectively work on one or another of those factors. You've got to work on all of them holistically. So education, housing, employment, healthcare, all four of those things. And so when we started thinking about how do we apply that to Charlotte, and obviously given our faith background, we felt strongly that, you know, all of it had to be built on a foundation of faith. We had to integrate faith into everything that we did, because if we just did compassion work and gave somebody a, you know, a higher income and a, and a dry roof over their head and they didn't know Christ, then we've really swung and missed. And so we wanted to integrate faith not just inject faith, but integrate faith, there's a difference. And so we came back to Charlotte pretty amped up about saying, okay, let's pick a neighborhood in uh, Charlotte and let's go to work. And that's what we did. We ended up, again, through some really cool God events, we focused on, decided to focus on West Charlotte. I was the only real estate guy in the group. And so I said, all right, housing is something, let me, how hard can it be? And so I dove into that and found out pretty quickly it can be really, really difficult. But but here we are, whatever, some six years later and and hard at it. Was it. Now, you were doing some of this discipleship and mentorship with Mark Lentz, right? Absolutely. Was he involved in this? Was he on this journey with you? Or so he when you we, we, I think it's yeah. important, you know, when I first heard your story, I was so focused on kind of you doing it, but this is such a huge project. I mean, I mean I mean Frankly, you know, one of our principles around Arcos is life is a team sport, you know, but when you're taking on big projects, especially, I mean, you got to have a partner, even if they're not in, and I know you will hear about how you kind of brought along your real estate partners too, but, but, but have it, was that not helpful to have a partner along? No, I wouldn't have done it myself. You it's such, it's such a great point. It, this is so much bigger than me. I, you know, I'm the guy that you're talking to today, but any of a number of us could be on this same call and 
and the executive director, we, we ended up forming a nonprofit, which was not at all what we started out about. We were just going to go do some things, but we right. quickly realized, Mark and I, that we were the limiter because we only had a, we were both busy, um, actively, you know, working in leading companies and we just didn't have enough time margin. And so we ended up forming a nonprofit. The executive director of that is Hannah Beavers, who is amazing. She's taken the nonprofit beyond certainly where Mark and I, I think initially envisioned. And and so we are doing holistic work in, in West Charlotte and through a, a really innovative partnership with our company, Cross and Southeast, we're doing a lot of real estate and uh, we've got something like five or 600 affordable housing units uh, that Freedom Communities actually owns that Cross and Southeast has developed. Uh, and then uh, we've got another 500 or so on the drawing board as well. And, and you know, like I said, Mark is still as involved as I am in, in the work and other board members as well. And it's, uh, it's been remarkable. I just, I don't know. I don't know why this time that this is really hitting me such a team effort to do this. Cause I'm just thinking I'm, I'm picturing you on a plane or even getting dragged to, to, go to Atlanta by, you know, your friend is doing the PhD. I could see that. Right? Okay. Yeah. I'm supportive of you. Like I'll kind of give you a few bucks to go research this and maybe you can put something together, but something about you having a buddy, uh, in this deal where you could kind of feed off each other, where it wasn't all up to you. I mean, that's just, that sounds like such a huge undertaking, uh, where you could take a piece, sort of build a team around it. Uh, that that's really, uh, an amazing story. Do you have a success story or something? How, how long has this been going on? Well, we started it initially in about 2016, 2017. Yeah. It's really started to, you know, kind of snowball rolling down the hill. In yeah. fact, over the last two or three years, we've been able to, to really attract some amazing investors to help uh, fund some of the work that we're doing. And, and it's tough. I, I want, when we met with the Purpose Built, uh, folks uh, back, I guess that was 2016, 2017, maybe we were talking to them about our faith component and they kind of almost, you could see perceptible eye rolls. And we said, well, what was that about? And they said, well, you know, our experience with faith people isn't great. And we said, all right, what, what do you mean by that? And, and it was really powerful to both Mark and I, they said, faith people talk a good game and they get in the work and this is generational work. This, there's no easy wins here. This is a long, tough slog. Uh, if you're going to impact neighborhoods, it's 20 year work. It's not two year work. Yeah. And, and you know, these church committees turn over and people lose interest and they ultimately end up doing more harm than good because wow. they over promise and underperform. Wow. And so to your point about having somebody in the work with you, there were there were low times along the way, certainly. And Mark and I, you know, had plenty of times that we were discouraged, but we encouraged each other and and we said we're not gonna be those guys that, that are gonna lean in and when the going gets tough, they turn tail. And so so we're still at it and by God's grace, you know, things are are uh you know, have evolved and and uh, we've had some great stories with impacting families and single moms and uh uh, we still have tons of work to do, but that's what really got us into the affordable housing development work. 
And like you and I talked about, the affordable housing business is really difficult. Uh, it's the least profitable of any of our business lines. Every hour I spend in that is an hour I could be making more money doing almost anything else. And yet I get up in the morning with a, you know, just a smile on my face that I get to, to really try to invest in people and uh, not worry about uh, the economics. I mean, you and I have had a very interesting conversation about this because we were talking about the cost of doing this, right? Just like you said, every hour you spend, and I think you told me you're spending almost half your time now doing this. Is that fair? That's correct. So that's a lot of time you could be doing, frankly, more profitable work from the world's perspective. But, but the word that came up when we were talking about this earlier was scorecard. What do you, how do you think about what your scorecard is? Well, that's, that's a, a fantastic question. And frankly, it's a life-changing one if you wrestle well with it. I tell people there is a cost to this work. There's a great book, you know, The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a real impactful book to me. There is a cost to this work, you know, and it, but it's a question of how you keep score. And the Lord doesn't keep score the same way we do, right? So if you're keeping score about how much money you make, your balance sheet, your income statement, you wouldn't be doing what I'm doing because I could, you know, on the affordable housing space, because I could make money doing more money doing most any of our other business lines. But like we said, God doesn't keep score that way. And, you know, when you, there are a couple of Bible verses that, you know, that have been kind of my, my North Star kind of verses, you know, one is Micah 6, 8, you know, what does the Lord require of you? I mean, it's not optional. What does the Lord require of you to act justly or to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly? I mean, that's, you know, wrestle with that one. And, and then Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city for in its welfare is your welfare. Seek the welfare. So, I mean, how many of us get up in the morning saying, okay, how can I bless my city today? But we're called to pray for uh, our city. We're called to bless our city. We're called to invest in our city. And, and when you start seeing these intractable social problems like affordable housing, you know, like foster care, like all these incredible needs, we all have been given gifts and abilities and networks. Let's use those to, uh, you know, to seek the welfare of the city that we're, that we're uh, living in. I love that. And one other thing that I think is very unique about your story is kind of how growing up in the South Side of Chicago gave you exposure to a, you know, a neighborhood changing, frankly, for the worse, more crime coming and that kind of thing. And reversing that trend is now like your life's work. Fascinating. Also, this idea of going through halftime and, you know, some people, even like Bob Buford, who wrote the book Halftime and started the organization, you know, felt called to sell the business and do it. But I know he never felt like that was the model. He just like asked God what to do. And if you stay in the business, maybe find a way to use the platform. I, I love the way you've used the platform. You've partnered with others. And one thing that we had an interesting conversation about capital, of course, I'm a finance guy. So I always think about the uh, dollars and cents, but I think, you know, we had an interesting conversation about real estate is capital intensive and to do the ministry work. Of course, your for-profit work as well, the more profitable business also requires capital. But as a real estate development person, you know, it's really required that you put money into these deals. So, you know, some people are also called to give away 
to maybe a lot of their balance sheet. But in your case, maybe retaining some of that balance sheet actually allows you to administrate. How do you think about the capital? Yeah, that's really interesting. And like we talked about, I, I think the important thing is God wants us to wrestle with stewardship. And the answer he gives me is going to be different than the answer he gives you and, and others. You know, some people, you know, kind of say, how much money do I need to live on? And I'm going to give away everything more than that. Right. Uh, and that's frankly never been my approach. You know, my wife and I have, have wrestled with stewardship and we wanted to be generous. And basically, you know, everything, you know, that passes through our hands is guys, the Lord owns everything. He, he, you know, there's not a square inch at all of creation that he doesn't, as Abraham Piper says, that he doesn't declare mine. Uh, and so, uh, and we're going to have to stand before him and give an account uh, on how we use that. But in, a, in real estate, as you know, you need capital to do this. And um, by God's grace, we were able to, to build some, you know, a balance sheet to some extent. And it was incredibly important uh, when we started doing affordable housing, because in affordable housing, you have to, you, you have to guarantee, you know, there has to be guarantee guarantees place. You've got to guarantee tax credit compliance. You got to guarantee the construction loan, construction completion. You guarantee operating deficits. I don't want to get too nerdy with, you know, um, on this deal, but all of those require a balance sheet. And I, I couldn't really ask my partners to pledge the, the company assets because it was really my calling to get into this space, not as much theirs. They support me a hundred percent and, and they're fully behind this work even more so today than when we started. But, you know, I've had to to use some of those personal resources to to pledge for uh, each of the developments that we're doing. And had I given away all the excess, I would be unable to serve the community uh, in, in that way. So again, you know, the Lord wants us to wrestle with it, but the answer he gives me is going to be different than the answer he gives to others. Well, I just love that because I think it's in the wrestling, right? We're all just stewards, whatever he gives us uniquely. And he's just got something unique for each of us. It's so cool the way he does that. And then it's really not about, it's not formulaic for everybody. It's not exactly the same that by definition. And so one of the things we talked about yesterday was kind of the, you know, as my friend Josh Arrington here at Arcos uh, uh, was teaching me, you know, there's the two barns, he calls it, right? Like we were talking about the other day where, uh, you know, you've got the, uh, the farmer who's building bigger barns and, uh, and Jesus is like, you shouldn't build bigger barns. Your life is demanded of you. You know, don't just uh, build them and sit back and relax and spend it on yourself. And of course, there's the story of uh, Joseph who God says, build bigger barns because there's going to be a famine. It's not about whether a barn gets built or not. Right. It's about seeking God's face on what does he want you to do with what he's put in, in your lap, right? I love that. I think that's exactly right. And um, and wrestling with it before God, I think, is uh, is the important part. Yeah, exactly. And well, listen, as we kind of get to the end here, this has been just a, a great story. And I just love what you're doing and the focus that you have and the way you're bringing other people along uh, for a big a big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, those are always fun too. But as we, as we finish, you know, we always just sort of picture ourselves, you know, having a conversation, having a cup of coffee and talking about stuff that matters. And then we just happen to have a podcast here where other, other business owners are, uh, listening in. 
And I always just think about somebody on the treadmill or walking their dog listening to this and going, man, I am not in anywhere close to, uh, to, to where he is today. But, you know, and maybe it's sort of one of these younger business guys that uh, you kind of help mentor or something. So if they're listening to this, they're like, man, this guy's, I can't take on that big a project. What would be just some practical tip that they could employ tomorrow to just take a step in the right direction? You know, that, that's a great question. I guess a couple of things I would say just, you know, from, from my lessons, I, I, I know buddies of mine that, that say, boy, I love that. You know, I, I need to do that. And then six months later, 12 months later, 18 months later, they're still saying, I need to do that. So I guess the practical takeaway is you got to take the first step and don't look for something perfect that you can go spend half your time on. Just spend an hour a month or an hour a week on something that you feel passionate about. And to use Lloyd's term or halftime's term, you know, low cost probe. Yeah. You know, if you're interested in kids or foster care or housing or, you know, right to life or whatever the, the cause is, lean in just a little bit. And if you're young and you got little kids, you're going to be super, super busy. Find something that, you know, an hour a week or an hour a month that you can do with your wife or with your kids so that you can do it together. And, and over time, the Lord will, will either say, Hey, I got more opportunities for you to serve there, or this isn't for you. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, another assignment, but don't wait till you're 50 or 60 or 70 when you got time margin. I mean, I, I tell people the greediest folks I know, the least generous folks I know are billionaires. They spend all their lives thinking I'll give it away later and most of them don't. So just start it. It's, it's a muscle that you want to flex early and often. And I also mentioned about, uh, I guess, see the city that you live in as something mm -hmm. to bless rather than someplace where the unbelieving culture lives. What can you do? You may be a real estate guy like me, or you may be an accountant, or you may be a fireman, or you may be a school teacher. How can you bless the city mm. uniquely? You know that uh, that you live in, not just assume it's uh, it's toxic and it's that's where the other. Well, you know what? Uh, I mean, I can fall into that trap. It's a lot easier to complain about the environment than to maybe be a a, a part of the solution. You know. Or to take, try to take your solution somewhere else, you know? I mean, and there's nothing wrong with doing other things around the nation or in other countries and that kind of thing. But to think about your city and how you can bless that, I think all of us can play some role in that, to, to think about that. Well, thanks. This has really been uh, a really fun conversation, Tim. I really appreciate your sharing your story with us today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's been an honor. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.